0: that digs beneath the surface to understand how scientific publications are created. In each episode, we take a paper from the literature and talk about the story behind the science with one of its authors. I'm Liz Haswell.
1: And I'm Ivan Baxter. And in this episode, we talk to Sophie and Camune. We discuss a recent collaborative paper that embodies the concept of open science, the importance of redefining the, the meaning of the word impact, and, Sophie and gives us great insight into the future of science in the plant pathology community. Sophie Kamoun commun is a senior scientist at the Sainsbury Laboratory in Norwich, UK. He was born in Tunisia, got his maîtrise from Pierre and Marie Curie University in Paris, France. He then moved to the United States, where he did both a PhD and postdoc at the University of California, Davis. He went to Wageningen University in the Netherlands for another postdoc, and he was a senior research scientist for three years there. Sofian started as an assistant professor in the Department of Plant Pathology at Ohio State University, Woosta, where he rose through the ranks to full professor before moving, in 2007, to the Sainsbury Lab, where he has been ever since. During this time, he has been the head of the laboratory for several years, and he has received many awards, and is an elected member of the AAAS and EMBO, and has served on many editorial boards.
0: So today's paper is Islam et al. 2016 emergence of wheat blast in Bangladesh was caused by a South American lineage of Magna Porthe Orisae. It's in BMC biology. So this paper addresses the source and the characteristics of a brand new outbreak of wheat blast that was reported in Bangladesh in February of 2016. So. Blast is a fungal disease that affects grasses, but it hadn't really been seen in wheat before with the exception of uh, some strain that had been discovered in South America. So in this paper, the authors describe the geographical distribution of this new disease observed in Bangladesh, characterize the symptoms of affected plants, and verify that this really is a rust fungus causing the new disease. Most importantly and strikingly, they performed RNA sequencing on symptomatic and asymptomatic plants and showed that the new strain was very likely derived from the wheat blast that had been previously identified in Brazil. So um, it probably traveled from South America rather than being a new strain or something unknown. So links to this paper and to any of the other digital resources that we discuss in this episode can be found in the show notes, uh, and you can navigate to the show notes by finding the Taproot landing page on the Plante website. So, Sophie, and welcome to the Taproot podcast. Please tell us how this paper came about. How did you start working on this problem?
2: What, what happened is uh, I heard about it. I heard about the outbreak uh, sometimes in early March, and um, just couple of weeks after it took off it was covered by the Bangladeshi press and, and, and so on and, and I had a, a contact someone I met at the conference earlier, Tafazal um, Islam, uh, he's a plant pathologist based in Bangladesh. We became Facebook friends so I, 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 I became familiar with him and his work through Facebook actually and, and I that's decided awesome. to contact him. Yeah it's awesome isn't it? Yeah that's, that's really mm-hmm. cool. Social media had a big role to play in this story. And so I sent him messages and said, hey, Tophazad, did you hear about this outbreak? And, um, you know, we have this technology here, we can do RNA-seq very quickly, uh, and we have some bioinformatics tools to set, identify the fungus and, and so on. And, and he immediately um, saw the, uh, the vision and understood the potential. And, and so he was like, yeah, sure, I'm going to send my students to the field and we'll, we'll get this going. So uh, just a couple of weeks after that, they, his students were in the field. They went to various places in Bangladesh. I understand they had to actually travel by by air. Uh, it's a big country. They had to fly to these different locations, and and collected samples, lesions from the field, and uh, and put them in RNA later, and then ship them to us. And uh, that's how the whole project kept going. I was actually waiting for an outbreak like this. I always wanted to apply the latest technology. Uh, and and in a very rapid fashion to a new uh, plant disease outbreak. And I wrote a commentary in 2012 saying that we're too slow in sequencing new new pathogens or new strains of pathogens that emerge. And then uh, with Diane Saunders, who was a postdoc in my lab and now is a group leader at the John Innes, uh, we developed this uh, field pathogenomics approach or metatranscriptomic approach uh, which allows us to uh, very quickly identify the pathogen. This is very useful when you don't have time or you cannot, in some cases, culture the pathogen. Uh, many of these pathogens uh, are obligate parasites that cannot be cultured. Uh, so, um, so we had the the methods really established. And so, when I heard about the outbreak, I was like, okay, we can we can maybe this is a real case, and let's try to do this as fast as we can. Uh, so we did it very quickly. We we found out within six weeks what. What was going on. Uh, and and the conclusion was that the, uh, the the strain that caused this outbreak in Bangladesh was most likely uh, introduced from South America uh, because it was very closely related to uh, a, a Brazilian lineage, uh, South American lineage, where the disease was already established for many years.
0: And so can you elaborate um, a little bit for those of us who aren't that familiar with plant pathogenesis, how knowing the identity of the blast will, is this helpful for the farmers? Like is that something that they can, is that information they can use in upcoming year or is that more like a first piece of information to have for some sort of 10-year genetic engineering program?
2: Oh yeah, sure. I mean uh, the th- this is somewhat obvious for plant pathologists because the first step really is to know your enemy, right? So, um, so, yeah, you have to know what you're dealing with, right? And 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 just identifying at the species level uh, the uh, microbe or the pathogen is not sufficient. You want to know what kind of strains you have. Is it an asexual clone or is it a diverse population, etc.? So the knowledge, uh, the precise knowledge of what the uh, pathogenic agent is, is, is critical to uh, help establish methods of control or at least even guide the research, right? So in this case... Uh, knowing that this is the Brazilian lineage uh, was very important because it allowed us to um, essentially immediately tell the Bangladeshi that they can apply all the knowledge that was generated in Brazil over uh, the 20-30 years uh, during which the the disease was established there uh, and and, and immediately apply that kind of knowledge to, uh, to the Bangladeshi situation so they knew which fungicides could be used, uh, there's not a lot of disease resistance in wheat against this pathogen, but at least they had some hints about which uh, cultivars would be maybe um, more resistant. Uh, so there was a number uh, of, uh, of of information like that that wouldn't have been possible to really uh, apply with confidence without knowing exactly who the enemy is, right?
0: Right. And are they are they are you following what's happening this season for those farmers?
2: Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, this season, it's uh, it's uh, back again, and uh, they had uh, a second outbreak in Bangladesh. But it's uh, it's much more serious this year because it crossed the border to India, and um, it was detected in West Bengal, which is the Indian state that said the border with Bangladesh, and the uh, Indians decided to burn all the all the infected fields. So there was reports that about thousand thousand hectares of wheat were, were burned uh with gasoline. I mean this is really uh, crazy when you think about it. They actually burned about thousand hectares uh to to try to to stop the outbreak. Uh, we haven't heard much since, so um hopefully the uh this particular spillover to India was contained, but um it does look like the pathogen is now established in in, in South Asia. Um, it's I think it's gonna be very hard to eradicate it.
0: So Sophie um, what we would like to do now is sort of move a little bit into the story behind the science here, because the results in, that are presented in this paper developed in a really unique and, and actually kind of amazing way. And as you alluded to earlier, social media played a really big role in that. Can you tell us about how this paper really came together?
2: Sure, so uh, once we received samples from uh, the team and, uh, and sequence them, uh, we couldn't actually do much with them ourselves, because I don't work on the blast pathogen. I'm not an expert in that field. I'm, I'm known for working with the potato blight, with the Irish potato famine. I, I didn't have neither the expertise nor the data, actually, you know, the genome sequence data, to compare the Bangladeshi samples with anything else. And so I thought this was a great case to uh, rally the community and, and and get everyone to contribute something so what we did is we uh, sequenced the samples and uh, you know processed them did the quality control and then posted everything on the website uh, website we called open Wheat blast and 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 essentially went and, and, and really made made some noises on social media and emailed colleagues and everything and asked, asked the crowd essentially out there to help us uh, analyze this data. And, and that was, the response was fantastic because the day we went live, there was only one genome sequence of the wheat blast strain that was public. It was a paper from a group in Montpellier uh, that was published a few months earlier. But that was one single sequence and you couldn't really do much by comparing the Bangladeshi uh, material and sequences to just one genome. Uh, but uh, within weeks, and as, as people started contributing analysis and all that, we had 22 additional genomes available of uh, South American uh, strains, uh, some from wheat, many of them from wheat and some from uh, other grasses. Uh, so, uh, so there was a, a fantastic community response. But taking... it, also,
0: it also really underlines how much data there is out there that's not available to the public, right? <laughs> 22 <laughs> genomes.
2: Absolutely. That was a very interesting thing that many people had genome sequenced for several years, even in some cases, but they uh, haven't released them or they haven't finished analyzing them, or maybe they were uh, preparing a paper that was still in 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 the works. and in a way, it's a pity, right? Because this data was out there, and there was no reason maybe for them to release it. but this this essentially um, uh, you know encouraged them to uh, to share the data and contribute to the analysis. And so it was—it was a fantastic group exercise. Uh, and so we had two, in fact, two uh, population geneticists. Uh, one was Daniel Kroll in uh, at ETH in Zurich, and the other one is Pierre Gladieu in Montpellier. Uh, they both did the analysis separately, and they actually used overlapping also sets, So they used overlapping genomes because they had their own genomes, and they some of them were the same, but some weren't. Uh, and so. Uh, so what was, what was really fun is essentially six weeks after the uh, collections of the samples uh, in Bangladesh, we had reports coming out from both Daniel and Pierre uh, posted on our uh, Open Weed Blast uh, website. And and the cool thing, they came out with the same conclusion that this uh, Bangladeshi um, outbreak was called, caused by clonal lineage, by a single clone. And that clone was very closely related to some of the South American um, uh, genotypes we had, so it was very uh, clear that this was most likely an introduction from South America. So that was that was really uh, a great way to uh, to get the community to collectively really contribute, and just a whole bunch of people contributed in one way or another. Some contributed genomes, some contributed interpretation of the analysis, and some performed the analysis themselves.
0: There's something like 31 authors
2: Yes. Yep. It's a large number of authors. We were very inclusive. We uh, included, for example, Tofazal's team, which were on the field and collected also pathology data, because half the paper is describing uh, the pathology of the of the outbreak. And uh, we also included the sequencing team, which uh, which were uh, in fact which fast tracked the project. Uh, I mean, we didn't. We asked them to go um, and really jump the queue, and they uh, they understood the. The urgency, and so they uh, they really worked really super hard to uh, to get the sequences uh, performed as fast as possible. And then uh, we also included all the people who contributed uh, information and data, like uh, who were involved in collecting the some strains in in South America, in Brazil, for example, or performed uh, the original sequencing of some of the other strains. And so uh, yes, we had a lot of authors, but that was great. I think what's what's wrong with that? The author contributions are in the paper and uh, it's very clear what everyone contributed and why not make it a group effort and, and really bring everyone together? I mean, I think that's a really
3: interesting sort of question and I think and I and we have these lots of large author papers and frequently they come out of large collaborations and these collaborations often take long times to, to sort of come together partially because there's a lot of negotiating of who's gonna do what, who's gonna get credit for it, who's gonna and and so what do you think is it about this project that made it so easy for that all to come together so fast? I mean we're talking about four to five months and from from, from beginning to end, is it the urgency and people just realizing that this is a really important thing that we're all just going to chip in and not care about and, and not care about sort of protecting our domains or uh, what what are, what are the what do you think the components were that made that that happen
2: i think it's several several aspects i think one of them clearly is is being part of this experiment of responding very quickly to uh, an outbreak like this one an important one and 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 being part of that so if you're working on weed blast you really wanted to be part of this this was obviously uh, a very dramatic event, a new outbreak, first time is detected outside South America. It's in a a fairly poor country and and a very serious uh, situation. So everyone wanted really to contribute. Uh, But we were very clear, I mean, I was very clear from the beginning that it would be bottom-up. Anyone who wants to contribute something can contribute and we'll just do our best to be as inclusive as possible at the end. And so that, I think, also, encouraged everyone to uh, to participate there was no uh, pre-negotiations of sort of like okay you do this analysis you do that analysis et cetera, which may be what well, that's the sort of thing that happens in more structured uh, projects uh, but you know there's an interesting thing that's built in this paper that's probably not very obvious to uh, readers and that's not also what usually happens we talk a lot about reproducibility of science these days right and so you publish a paper and then you wait you know, several months, maybe several years before somebody has confirmed your analysis, et cetera, right, or repeats the experiment. Right. What was fascinating here is because the work was done through crowdsourcing, so Daniel Kroll and Pierre Gladieu did their analysis in parallel uh, with overlapping data sets. They were not exactly the same data sets. There were some of the data we had on the website, but they also had their own access to their own separate uh, genomes. And the beauty of it is they came up with exactly the same conclusion. And the one figure we have in the paper, I actually I encourage them to put both figures, both of the analysis, end up in the paper side by side. And that's actually a beautiful case uh, of of live reproducibility, if you like. <laughs> right? Yeah, um, so this right. is This,
3: this is figure five. Figure five, a, in, a and B, it looks like. Uh, yeah. So let me just follow up on sort of the open science thing and, and talk about your use of preprints here. So you guys submitted this manuscript in preprint form to Bioarchive in June, and then several weeks later submitted it uh, to BMC Biology. I assume that was the uh, the first journal you submitted it to. Is is that uh, was? Can you talk a little bit about what the why you put it on the pre- preprint server, and, and then what you were doing in the intervening time?
2: Sure, so uh, independently of this project, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of preprints. I think biologists are behind other areas of science. I think we should be using preprints much more frequently. Uh, to me, the logic is very obvious. Uh, we, uh, you know, we write papers in large part to communicate our science, and so if you're actually able to communicate that science several months earlier than, than usual, then why not? And and the preprint is a way also of uh, establishing um, a record and and and, and having a, a stamp on on your work, a date stamp on your work, and so it's it also gives more confidence to students and postdocs, especially when they're applying for fellowships. These days, you can actually list uh, preprints uh, in your CV and these sort of things. Uh, so that's I think that's that's a very Very positive development, and I've been very supportive of BioArchive from day one. I I serve as an affiliate for BioArchive. I've been tweeting, um, guys, check hashtag ASAPbio, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on right now in scientific publishing around the uh, topic of preprints. So independently of this type of project and the crowdsourcing and open science, I think preprints are fantastic, and uh, I should add that right now in my lab, I'm uh, my, my approach is that, by default, we will post every paper as a preprint before submission to a formal journal unless one of the author objects to it. So I respect that. If, if an author says, I don't want to do it, then I'm, I'm, I will respect that. But by default, we will post everything as a preprint first. So, um, so that's my view. I think preprints are the future, they're here to stay, and, and they're just going to be more and more uh, common in, in, in biology. Now, obviously, in this project, uh, that made a lot of sense to use the the Bioarchive uh, because we obviously wanted to be open source. We wanted to communicate our findings as fast as possible. Uh, to be honest, the uh, paper in Bioarchive didn't have a lot more uh, to add compared to the um, the reports that were already on uh, on the open Blast website. Uh, it was just organized in a more standard uh, fashion. And, and yes, there was a little bit more pathology and more, more data coming out of Bangladesh. Uh, and it was written in a more sort of formal way than, than the reports that were on the website. But the, the main conclusion, which is that the Bangladeshi outbreak was a clone uh, that most likely was introduced for South America, was obviously the same and was already disseminated for uh, several weeks through social media and through our uh, open blast, uh website.
3: So in terms of for people on the, on the ground mm-hmm. using, you know, who needed to know this to help them try and combat this infection, this wasn't anything new. The bioarchive was really a step for the scientists to start getting credit the way scientists get credit, which is having a citable thing up as soon as possible.
2: Exactly. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I, I think this whole, the whole way this paper came together is so. So interesting, and it's sort of easy to understand how people would be motivated to do it by sort of a a crisis like this. But even in cases of crisis, this isn't always the case, right? I think there are a lot of examples of human diseases and plant diseases where getting information out hasn't been shared widely. Can you just talk a little bit about that and also whether you think maybe this this new open source approach that you used here, that other people are going to use this as a model for how to approach similar cases in the future and also in human diseases too?
2: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, This is not the norm and this is why also I wrote that commentary in 2012 where I was quite critical about the fact that typically plant pathologists are not very fast in terms of responding and you're right, even in some of the um, Human infectious disease outbreaks, then people can be um, a little bit slow in releasing information and all that. I, I honestly believe that it's our function uh, to really change incentives and, and create new incentives for scientists to do this. I think the question becomes a question of credit, uh, a question of who really um, Sort of did what and I think, uh, I think more transparency about who performs certain analysis and giving credit where credit is due in terms of collecting samples, in terms of sequencing the genomes, in terms of analyzing them. Also people coming later and interpreting them, right? I mean some people may come later in the project and interpret the data in a different way and have a very important contribution. That's also highly valuable. But a lot of times our uh, incentives are, are really wrong in, in science, right? I mean, we we focus on one metric, which is number of papers. We talk about impact factors. that I say impact factor. I hear that word, and and you know things like that. So rather than actually thinking about the impact, right? So um, and 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 so in this case, I was personally extremely proud of the website already, right? I mean, the website I thought was an amazing contribution. Uh, so the paper really was was a cherry on the pie, but I thought the website was already basically playing a function in terms of impact and influence and and, and really getting people to communicating your science in a different way. In this case, it was very different. It wasn't through a uh, formal publication. It was really through reports posted on the website. And so those tweets coming out of uh, Danielle and Pierre and saying, hey, we figured it out, you know, the Bangladeshi Outbreak is caused by a clone, and it's it's a it's a South American clone. So uh, uh, so those tweets were um, were very important. That was the first time, I, in fact, the, that knowledge that piece of information was ever published. It was through Twitter, and so uh, to me, that's that's like as worthy as a publication. And you you really have to give credit actually to those two guys for having performed the an analysis, right? Um, and so, um, yeah. So I think a lot of it is about incentives, right? We we really need to think very hard about incentives in science, in biology in particular. I think we sometimes are too unidimensional and don't really look at the big picture. And and I think that's we all have a role to play, right? When we hire or when we recruit and when we evaluate promotions and all that. Uh, well, what's the what's the impact and uh, what's the broader picture there? Not just counting the papers and and checking which journals they were published in.
3: Yeah. So speaking of Twitter, uh, uh, let me recommend Sofian as a, as a fantastic uh, person to follow on Twitter. But actually, one of the things that I, I wanted to, to bring up, you, you had a tweet um, sometime last fall, I think, because there was a, a wheat uh, rust, I think it was wheat rust it outbreak in the- Sicily. Uh,
0: Sicily stem rust.
3: Stem rust, yep. yeah, That where they didn't do any of this. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like yep. they kept it. All under wraps. Yep. I mean, so in terms of the, is is that? I wonder how much of that is is sort of the science and our and our incentive structure for for credit, but also, uh, I mean, is there an are there are the incentives wrong on the sort of on the uh, extension side too, where they they want us that some of the 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 countries want to keep it quiet of what's going on, or or, or is that is it really just? Uh, on the science side, that we're, you're seeing this sort of skewed incentives.
2: Yeah, I don't. I mean, I you're right. So there was an outbreak of stem rust in Sicily last September, um, and it was only uh, made public uh, many months later. And uh, I think February was it. A tweet was February or March, uh, and and so um, yes, it wasn't disclosed until much 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 later. And, Even worse, after the planting season uh, started, that saddens me a lot because um, you know Sicily actually is only a few hundred kilometers from Tunisia, where I was born and grew up, and I actually have members of my family who have uh, wheat farms in Tunisia, and that's only a few hundred kilometers from that outbreak, and and you know they they have an extension service there, they know how to uh, they know what stem rust is, they could scout for stem rust symptoms in the field, they could. already stockpile certain fungicides and, and make decisions like that. So, even from a personal point of view, I was actually quite annoyed that uh, that information wasn't made public. I'm sure I would have informed people about it, and, and they probably would have taken actions. If anything, be a little bit more aware and pay a little bit more attention to the symptoms they see in the field, in case they, that disease to spread uh, to other areas. So. Um, so, it's sad. I, I I don't really understand why that's not happening more frequently. Uh, I always use the example of, of human infectious diseases. Imagine there would be like a, an outbreak of Zika or whatever, Ebola or something, in your neighborhood, and nobody tells you about it. I mean, you only find out after six months. That wouldn't be good. So, um, I think it's the same thing here, and um, maybe plant pathologists are more conservative, and they're not used to um,
0: no, I don't think that's true. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm not a plant pathologist and I even I struggle with the thought of making my data completely open source like that. Okay. But I can think of cases where this kind of this kind of approach could be applied outside of um sort of an outbreak where As a plant pathologist, it's obvious that you need to get your information out there for the good of farmers. When you're working on basic biology, maybe it's not so clear. But I can think of cases in, say, Arabidopsis biology over the last couple of years where concerns about certain mutants and their validity of their their phenotypes associated with them, maybe if that had been dealt with in a completely open-source manner, that can you imagine how many hours of graduate student time could have been saved um, by approaching that in, an, in in this way rather than individual people slogging through repeated attempts to reproduce other people's data and stuff?
2: Yeah, Sure, absolutely. And I see your point. I mean, you look at it from a scientist's point of view of sort of protecting your data and, and waiting until publication. Yes, that's an issue, it's true. Um, but also these days, I mean, if you, I mean, there are ways of posting the data. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's many ways. There's also um, formal uh, repositories. I'm thinking of Fixture, and other uh, ways of, of quickly posting datasets. And um, and mm-hmm. you know, somebody would be very hard pressed to use that dataset without acknowledging you. I mean, that would be first unethical, right? uh, and ethical, right? And so they'd have to somehow acknowledge you. Some in some ways. Right. Uh, and probably they need to come back to you to ask to get more information, right? Because who is going to invest their student or postdoc time into analyzing data dataset without knowing everything about the dataset? So, so I think um, I think we should be a little bit more open. I think there's a bit of um, of a paranoia, and 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 also, I mean, the way I see it, also is sometimes it's actually exciting to recruit an expert to your. Area of research, so I don't see that personally as a threat. I see it as a as a as an add-on to understand the questions I'm interested in or you know, the system I'm studying. So, so let's say if, you know when somebody for let's say sequence a genome of uh, a particular plant or a particular organism, uh, then um, you find maybe there's an expansion in a certain gene family. So obviously you would want to recruit the expert on the gene family to help you understand what's going on there, right? So sure. uh, so and and. You know, in some cases I guess you could do it by emailing identifying someone and emailing them but that can also be done through um maybe through more uh, more of an open source approach maybe tweeting and saying hey can somebody help me with this family who's, who knows about this stuff right and and maybe that's that's another way of approaching it so um so I don't know I'm, I'm, I, I understand that it's complicated and uh, i'm I'm sure that the model we used in this project would not be applicable to many other projects uh, but maybe we should try to think more creatively in, in, in bringing communities together and then creating new teams and it's more fun too yeah I mean I think one of the thing
3: the key things there is if you can post your data in a way that it ha- they have to cite it in a way that you get credit for and I think going back to your point about how are we incentivizing it if your data if somebody's taking your data and they have to they have to say where they got their data when they do their analysis so they're they're incorporating your data they have to cite it as a data citation at least. We need to be better about recognizing that that's an immensely valuable contribution sure. to the science and, yeah. and, and giving people those incentives I think is, is really gonna be key. And I, th- I think there, there are the occasional, and I think they almost never happen, stories about people who posted their data and somebody else swooped in and made it harder for them to get the most impact out of their work but I think it's it's more a, a case of frequently these are the ghost stories, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're the stories yes. you tell, and it inhibits everything when in reality there probably aren't ghosts.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, I think you're right, and I think there's a lot of discussion out there about recognizing data sets, especially important ones, and um, recognizing that as an important output uh, out of research program, an important contribution. I think that's happening, to be honest. I think. Uh, many of our colleagues are, have fantastic websites where they create data and, and produce wonderful data and share it. And, and as you very well know, uh, the funding agencies also do require that in many cases.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think I mean, as a scientist personally, I, what I what I like to see is actually influencing people and getting people to use my 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 stuff, right? So, yeah. so when you generate data set, I guess you also want to see the community use it whether it's cloning a single gene, or whether it's a gigantic gene expression data set, let's say, or, or a set of genomes, I think we all want to see people start using them, right? Because that's, that's credit. That's, those are your babies and you want people to, to play with them and, and, and that's influence and that's impact, right?
3: Yeah, Magnus Norberg said something to me. I was a postdoc when he said it to me and it just has stuck with me ever since. He said, I'm not worried about being scooped, I'm worried about being ignored.
2: Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's a beautiful quote. I totally agree with that. Gosh, that would be the worst thing as as a scientist to be ignored, right? Yeah. I mean, that's why we do science. I mean, I always say that our business is knowledge, right? We want to generate knowledge, but we want also that knowledge to influence others to do things differently and generate their own knowledge, uh, maybe through um, building on our knowledge, right? And so,
3: Sophia, we're 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 probably running close to the end here. Maybe you can just tell us what's next.
2: Yeah, so there's a bunch of different things going on. I mean obviously there's genetic research going on. I actually was funded on this work, uh, strangely enough, because I never worked on BLAST before. And guess what? In the last year since this project started I got two uh, two grants, one fairly major one. So uh, so I'm 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 a with blast person now. I'm kind of <laughs> which is amazing actually. <laughs> you know if a fairy came a year and a half ago and told me you'd be working on with blast, I would have said no way. Um, so it's uh, it's funny how how things uh, develop, um, but you know we're doing something else with the open wheat blast project right now with the open wheat blast initiative. Is our colleagues in Bangladesh have uh, screened um, bacteria that they isolated from wheat fields, uh, infected wheat fields, in fact, and um, and screened them for biocontrol activities against the fungus, and they identified four strains that have biocontrol activities. And we were just thinking about it I said, hey, we should sequence those too. And so so that's <laughs> happening right now. So that's, um, in fact, my postdoc, Emily, is just today uh, extracting the DNA from these strains. And we don't work on bacteria. We don't work on biocontrol agents. We have zero expertise in this. But we're just going to post all the data again on the website and, and just rally the biocontrol community and ask them for help. And, uh, who knows what will come out. In fact, three of the four bacteria are not even uh, identified at the moment. They don't even know what it is. They couldn't ID them. So uh, so it's going to be fun. We'll see what, what they are. And in this case, it's fun because we'll be tapping into a completely different community of scientists, the whole biocontrol uh, and all the microbiota people. So, um, so that'd be fun. So those of you who are listening there are experts in this area. Please come and help. Just check wheatplus.net. Fantastic.
3: Well, I think we're going to wrap that up. Sophia, this has been superb. Uh, I really appreciate it. Can you tell us how people can reach you if they have questions or comments?
2: Well, you can always follow me on Twitter at at CamoonLab. And uh, you can visit my website. It's camoonlab.net. And uh, you can always email me too. But uh, Twitter is, uh, is where I'm always, always present on Twitter. Okay. Liz, where can people reach you?
0: They can reach me on Twitter also at at eHaswell.
3: And people can reach me on Twitter at BaxterTwee, that's Baxter T-W-Y. And if you want to email questions or comments to Liz and myself about the podcast, the email is taproot at planta.org. And with that, we thank you very much, Sofian. This was uh, awesome.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Thank you. Sophie, And You are having impact, not just on science, but on the way science is being done. I think it's fabulous.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate your comments and your support.
1: The Taproot is produced for Plant A by Melanie Binder and Mary Williams and edited by Tazneen Bouffafel. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.